Is our, uh, we're doing a, a sermon series through Lent that we're calling Draw Near, and uh, we've incorporated into this sermon series some soul training, some, some practice between Sundays, and so I want to return to that. Our soul training from last Sunday uh, was to memorize a verse, uh, James 4, verse 8. And then also to um, be saying the Lord's Prayer with a particular focus on the first two words of the prayer, our Father. So I want to ask, raise your hand if you have James 4, 8 down. Don't be shy. You know I'm going to call on someone, right? Is that why? So if you're not afraid for me to call on you and you've memorized it, raise your hand. Okay, come on now. All right, Sarah, James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now raise your hand. Did you know that? Of course, everyone's hand goes up. Draw near to God, and he's promised us that he will draw near to us. You know, there are a lot of people, and perhaps you're one of them, who simply don't believe that to be true fundamentally. Don't believe it to be true that if I draw near to God, he's going to draw near to me. In fact, you would take that sentence and you would, might complete it in a different fashion. You might say, if I draw near, the, the church walls are going to come crumbling down. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. If I draw near I am sure that God will greet me with a, a frown. There'll be displeasure, disappointment, maybe even disgust. If I draw near to God, I doubt he's even going to notice, much less care. If I draw near to God, I'm sure I'll make a fool of myself. I'll say something that I wasn't supposed to say. I'll think something I shouldn't have think. I'll do something I shouldn't have done. And I'll be worse off than if I just kind of kept my distance. If I draw near to God, he'll let me know that I'm not welcome because of that sin that I've struggled with over and over again. Now what I, I believe, because I know this to be true in my own life, I believe every one of us is susceptible to some lie, some deception about this idea of drawing near and God will draw near to us. And so this verse, James 4, 8, which I really do want you to memorize, this is the easy one, it gets harder from here. Uh, this verse is a, uh, a corrective to that lie that you might be believing, that deception. This is the, the script that needs to replace that, that lie. This is the, uh, an empowering, hope-filled truth that we as believers need to cling to God is saying, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And so, the other part of our soul training was the Lord's Prayer, in particular, the Our Father. Do you know when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he could have began the, the prayer, this, this model prayer, this addressing God with any number of names for God, any number of titles it's not insignificant that the one he chose is Father. When you pray, recognize that the one to whom you are praying is 
father. And I love what Nate just said in his prayer, as a father has compassion on his children. When fathers are what fathers are supposed to be and they do what fathers are supposed to do, they have compassion on their children. They love their children. Our God is our father. And when we draw near to him, we are to do so with that relationship in mind that I am coming before my father. Jesus even made it more personal when he used the word Abba. I'm coming before my daddy. And and any father who is worth their salt loves when their children come before them, especially when they stumble. You see, there's this lie that we believe that if I stumble, then I can't draw near. But if you're a father, you know the, the joy and the really the honor and the glory it is that when your kids struggle, that they choose to turn to you, there is no greater blessing. I mean, that is what a father is called to be. Draw near to God and he, your loving father, will every time draw near to you. So this morning, as we continue this sermon series, my hope is to convince you that that really is, in fact, true. That God's going to draw near to you every time as you draw near to him. And to to help convince you of that, we're going to turn to a passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to that, Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, this passage, as is much of the book of Hebrews, is dense. It's theologically dense. So we're going to take a a deep dive for a a few moments into some theology, and and we're going to come out with the word, therefore. So in light of all of these things that are true, therefore, what does that mean for us? So in order to get to the therefore, I wish we could just start at the therefore, but we need to actually start into the deep end. And so Hebrews 10, uh, verse 1 begins in the deep end. So here we go. Actually, let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, and you've given it to us so that we might not be deceived, so that we might believe those things that are true and be able to say no to those things that are false. And so we pray that you would use your word now to... uh, instruct us and also to to form us and shape us into who you've called us to be may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you we pray this in jesus name amen hebrews 10 verse 1 the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves for this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and they would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So let's stop there and just allow our minds to catch up. Hebrews 10 begins by explaining what was true before Jesus. 
So this is the, the picture of the faith community before Jesus, before he came to this earth, before he died, before he rose again. This is how things used to work in the old system, in the old covenant is the, the theological word that we use, before Christ. In the old system, a worshiper couldn't just presume to draw near to God without taking certain precautions. There had to be uh, steps that were taking because the dilemma that has always faced worshipers both before Jesus came to this earth and now the dilemma that faces us is how do we as unrighteous people come before a God who is altogether righteous? How do we who are unholy come before a God who is holy? How do we who are guilty come before a God in complete innocence? How, how does that work? And so the remedy for that problem in the old system, which was described as the law, was the sacrificial system. In order for sinful man to approach God, there had to be elaborate blood sacrifices. One was never enough. These sacrifices were offered perpetually over and over again, the most significant being that that was offered on the Day of Atonement. One day of, uh, of the year, the high priest would make a, a sacrifice first for himself. He'd sacrifice the blood of a, a bull and take that blood and, and take it into the most holy place, which was in the tabernacle behind this veil, and he'd go in and he'd make atonement for himself. And then he'd sacrifice a goat and take the blood of the goat into the most holy place and make atonement for the people. And this happened once a year. In Leviticus 16, you can read about the Day of Atonement, but there's this fascinating verse, verse 2 of Leviticus 16, in which God tells Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he doesn't get to come into the most holy place anytime he wants. He doesn't just get to draw near anytime he feels like it. If he does, he will die. Wow. In fact, if you look at the, the old system, the old covenant, in as much as it's designed to enable people to draw near to God, it is also communicating that you don't get to draw near to God, that you are separated from your God. And this whole system that, that God has set up, it's interesting, he says, it's impossible. It doesn't really work. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And as much as the blood of the, the bull and the goat was intended to help the Israelites draw near, it's also reinforcing this idea that you can't really draw near. And so we have to ask, if it didn't really work, then what was the point? What was God doing? Why did God create such a system that, that was, quote, imperfect, that didn't enable people to draw near whenever they wanted? The answer to that question, part of the answer is given in verse 1. The law, the old system, the old covenant, was a shadow of good things that are coming. So this whole sacrificial system that God set up was pointing 
towards something that was coming, and that thing that was coming he describes as better. There's something better coming than this. So the sacrificial system, the old covenant, it was the prelude to a new system, to a new covenant, one that worked, one that was better. The other thing the law did was it served to reveal to every single person their need for a savior. The law revealed that every single person was a lawbreaker. At one point or another, everybody came up against the law and lost. So I was thinking about our, our, our local police. We have our Fulton police members here today, and, and maybe you know them. Maybe you don't. Uh, you know, maybe you haven't broken any laws, or maybe you haven't been caught breaking any laws. But God's righteous decrees are much more exacting than our city laws or our country laws. Before God, we are all lawbreakers and nobody gets away with it. Nobody breaks a law and God doesn't notice. Before God, every single one of us is a lawbreaker. And so what the law serves is to let us all know I'm in trouble and I need help. I need someone to help me. I need, and what the scripture uses, the word the scripture uses is a Messiah, a Savior. I need a Savior. We all need a Savior. This is the human dilemma before Jesus came and died and rose again. It's the, the human dilemma now. And so Hebrews 10 continues by explaining that what God uh, has done now to address this dilemma. So here's the situation. We advance to verse 5. Therefore... When Christ came into the world, he said, Here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the old system, the old covenant. He sets it aside to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy. We have been made holy. Is this hocus pocus? Is God just saying, I'm going to pretend like you're holy? I don't think so. I think he's saying that, that, that something fundamentally has happened, that we who are guilty have now been declared innocent. We have been made holy. The word earlier used was the word perfect. We've been made righteous. But as you and I both know, it's not my righteousness, it's not your righteousness. God has given us the gift of Christ's righteousness. And then he adds later in verse 17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What a contrast to the old system where these sacrifices were just, the fires never went out. It was a continual sacrifice, one after the other, and now in this, this new system, this second way, this new covenant, it says the sacrifice of Jesus is once 
for all. In other words, it's settled. We don't need to add anything to that. I think maybe this is where Satan steps in and says, yes, Jesus has done that, but you need to add something to it. Like, you, you need to uphold your end of the deal, which really tramples on what Jesus has done for us. What we're doing when we believe that lie, we're saying, you know what, I, I want to go back and live under the old way. I want to go back and live under that first covenant you know, where I have to come before God based on my own resume, and if not, I've got to do something where God has provided us this, this better way. So, their sins and lawless acts I'll remember no more. Where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. The case against us is closed. On account of Jesus Christ, you have been declared righteous if... You have placed your hope in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, I want to pause at, at this point because this is crucial. The salvation that Jesus has provided is not a universal salvation. It's a particular salvation. In the Reformed Church, we call it a limited atonement. Going back to the, the high priest, you know how it worked with the goats? He would lay his hands on the goat. And he'd confess the sins of the, the community. And one of those goats was killed and the blood was taken and sprinkled on the altar. The other goat, called the scapegoat, was led out into the wilderness. And it was a sign of the sin being removed. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. But in the laying on of hands, there was this imputation of sin. It was like the sin is being communicated through Aaron the priest onto this goat, and it required the laying on of hands. It is true today. You can be forgiven of your sins, but it requires the laying on of hands. What we use to describe that is trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That is how you reach out and lay hands on Jesus, and your sin goes to him, and his righteousness comes to you, but it requires the laying on of hands. And so in this series where we're talking about draw near, if you have yet to lay hands on Jesus and acknowledge I'm a lawbreaker, I'm guilty before God, maybe innocent in the laws of the land, but guilty before God, I need a savior. Lord Jesus, be that savior. If that's not you, if you haven't done that yet, then that is the very first step that needs to be taken to draw near. Now, I know many of you have done that step, and so the scripture continues, and it's speaking now to you. Those of you who have trusted Jesus uh, as your Lord and Savior, verse 19, here it is again, therefore, therefore, in light of everything that it just said, in light that the old covenant has been replaced by a new covenant, a better way, because God has done this by the shedding of his blood, therefore... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience 
and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Did you notice the contrast between what God told Moses to say to Aaron about approaching and what we just read? God tells Moses, hey, your brother Aaron, he's getting a little bit too comfortable. He's coming before me anytime he wants. He's getting a little too confident, a little too bold. Tell him that he can't just draw near anytime he wants or else he will die. That's the old covenant. And now what we hear Let us draw near. How do we draw near? With a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So no longer is it, hey, don't draw near or you might die anytime you want. Now it is draw near with full assurance of faith. Come. Come frequently. Come often. I remember uh, when I was in seminary, my preaching professor was talking once and and he said something that that I thought was just great. He said, uh, in your preaching, he said, beware of the hortatory subjunctive. I wrote that down. Beware of the hortatory subjunctive. That is great advice. What is a hortatory subjunctive? Well, Google is amazing. I can tell you now what a hortatory subjunctive is. A hortatory subjunctive is a, an exhortation, an encouragement, but the outcome is not assured. And the way it shows up in English is with the words, let us. So, let us pray. That's a hortatory subjunctive. And, and the, way, the reason I think he told us, beware of that, don't use that too often, is because it's kind of weak. You know, it's not real forceful. It would be better to say, pray with me. But let us pray is kind of this invitation, like you might do it, but you also might say, I don't want to pray. I'm not going to pray. You can't make me pray. What we just read, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, is filled with hortatory subjunctives. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full of assurance of faith. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we might spur one another towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That's a lot of hortatory subjunctives, but it's God's word, so we're going to go with it. God has gone to great lengths to make all of those possible. We can do all of those things because of what Christ has done for us. But a hortatory subjunctive means that it's there for you. Let us memorize James 4.8. I think I saw two hands go up. It's, it's there for us. The invitation is there for us. But, but now we have a role to play. We get to decide, yeah, I'm going to do that. Or, you know what, I'm not going to do that, and you can't make me. God would like us to draw near to him. He commands us to draw near to him, and he does so, he says, don't doubt it. 
Be careful of the scripts that you are believing. Those scripts that are telling you, oh, I can't really do this. I'm not going to be welcomed. Check those at the door. Cling to his truth. If God says, draw near, then who are you to question whether or not you can? Let me say that again. If God says, draw near, who are you to question him? that you really are able and capable of doing that. Draw near. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Don't lose sight of this truth. And then he says, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That word spur, a real good translation in English is the word pester. It's one of the things we get to do at church. Pester one another towards love and and good deeds. You see, every one of us, I think, because we are part of the human race, we have this slide towards sloth. Or is that just me? This slide towards, you know, I'm, I'm passion, but my, my fire slowly dwindles. And so I need to do things to keep that fire, to keep that passion. And one of the things that I do uh, is I help you keep your passion, and I need you to pester me towards love and good deeds. Well, how can you pester me? Hey, uh, we've got this small group, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Or, you know, we're, uh, we're going to pray. You want to pray with us? Or how can I pray for you? Or, or let's go do this service thing together. Uh, what are you reading in Scripture? How's it going with your one? We get to pester each other towards love and good deeds. And so it follows that the next thing he says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. This is why we come together. As we draw near to God, there's something that happens among us. We draw closer to one another. Now, I'm aware of this command, let us not give up meeting together. We have come through an unusual time during COVID where for a a long season, we have not drawn together. And and we've done so with really good reasons. There's other reasons that we've chosen to do that, but this is not something to perpetually do. There's a lot of people that are are trying to look into their crystal ball. What's going to happen in the church in the future? Are people just always now going to just use technology as their means to to draw near? Lord, I hope not. I mean, I am so grateful for our live stream, and we are, are reaching people that we wouldn't have reached before. But for believers who need to pester one another, the live stream is not a real effective tool. We need to be together, and when we come together, something has to happen here. And if it's not happening, then people will say, why are we gathering? What's the point? I could just get as much out of it sitting at home with my cup of coffee on my couch as if I'm coming into the presence. And so we need to be mindful. How are we pestering one another in the best sense of the word towards love and good deeds, towards Christ? Let us encourage one another as the day is drawing closer. The hortatory subjunctive tells us that this is what God wants from us. But now we get to choose, yeah, I'm going to do that or... No, I'm not. (laughs) And so, your soul training (laughs) uh, for this week, 
I should say, just memorize James 4.8 again. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to continue forward. Uh, there's two things I want to invite you to do. One uh, is to take five minutes a day of silence. So instead of uh, you know, starting off your time with God, of, of rifling off all the things that, that you need and, and worshiping and praising, all those good things, focus on hearing from God. And maybe you need to preface that with reading a psalm so that you get God's word in your, your head but then take a few minutes of just being quiet. I love the, the call to worship that we began with. That In this worship, there was a prophet who got up and spoke some words. God was speaking. We believe that God speaks to us. So take some, some, a few minutes and, and hear, what is God saying to you? And the second thing that I want to encourage you to do, let us memorize Hebrews 10, 19 through 22a. You're not going to do this in a day. This is a, a couple sentences. Here's what I love about scripture memory. It's hard. And because it's hard, what it forces you to do is fix your minds on it. You're gonna, if you take this on this week, you're going to spend more time meditating on God's word this week than I bet you have in previous weeks. That's a beautiful thing about memorizing. You're going to need to start today. Write it down on an index card, and then frequently, daily, be checking that card and see how I do it. I start with like the first sentence, and I do it until I have that first sentence down cold. And then I add the second sentence, and then I forget the first sentence. And then you, first and second sentence down cold, and then add another sentence. So I want to exhort you, let us memorize Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, the first part of 22, and take that five minutes. <laughs> 